0: You're listening to Loretta Piazza, experienced school principal, mentor and coach, and together we're talking out of school. You will hear from leaders who have lived and breathed so many experiences, good and bad, agonised over decisions, and have tossed and turned through countless sleepless nights. These are the people who will help you stay ahead of the game. I don't think there's one principal in Australia who hasn't heard of the Principal Health and Wellbeing Survey, given that it's been around for more than 10 years. Every principal I know completes a survey every year. What makes this survey particularly valuable is the fact that each participant receives in-depth feedback in relation to their own personal health and well-being immediately after completing the survey. Professor Phil Riley, the initiator of this survey, is my guest today. He shares insights into how he began his career in education, then transitioned into the field of psychology. We also discuss how the survey came into being and the impact of the principal's work on health and well-being. Hello, Phil. Welcome to Talking Out of School. Hi. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs>
1: Um, Well, I was a teacher for a long time and then I was a principal for um, quite a long time and uh, then, well, let's step back. When I was a teacher, after about four or five years teaching, I realised I didn't know anything about how kids learnt. I did this sort of dance at some point. They did these other movements at some point and then one day they would know something that they didn't know the day before and I kept thinking... What is going on here? I don't really understand. So I went back and trained as a psychologist, um, it at night in between, um, you know, all the other things I was doing and realized that I'd learned a whole lot of things in my psychology undergraduate degree that I should have been taught as an undergraduate teacher, and um, and then sort of that led to leadership positions and became a principal, and uh had a big falling out with um, the school I was at and decided that I was ready for a career change. I was probably actually a bit burnt out, I think, too, at the time. How long long were you a principal for? I was principal for about five years, sort of acting and, um, yeah, about five years, and um, the school that I was at, was going through a lot of turbulence at the time, as a lot of schools do, of course. Um, and anyway, the opportunity arose to to take a break, and I, I had been starting my PhD uh, a, a year or so before that all happened, actually probably a couple of years before that happened, and um, was offered some teaching at the university. And I thought, okay, time for a change. And then Went and did that and really liked that. And uh, one thing led to another around that. And the PhD kind of really focused me on the teacher student relationship and how crucial that is to the functioning of schools. And then I sort of looked at it that it, um, expanded to staff to staff relationships, leadership to, you know, when there's a power imbalance, all of those sorts of things. And just got fascinated by all of that. And um, we won a contract. I was at Monash at the time, and we won a contract to do provide mentoring support for all the newly appointed principals in Victoria. And I had been developing this mentoring program through my PhD, um, and had got to know a lot of principals around Victoria through that program because they'd all come to. And these were very experienced principals. I think the average age, of, the average level of experience of the people who I'd worked with previously in this program called Mentoring Matters, was 27 years experience. So, you know, working Mm, the kind of cream of the cream in a sense in Victoria and um, got them back to do the mentoring of the new principals when we won this contract at Myash. and we got them all together and because it was people from all over the state, we all met in a a hotel in um, Brighton on a Sunday and they were going to start their mentoring on the Monday. So the, the um, we were going to do some run-through stuff and uh, then their their new principals who they were going to mentor were going to arrive for dinner on Sunday night and we'd start the whole program on Monday morning. Anyway, in the breaks, all of these principals were talking about, oh, my, the person I'm going to mentor is so young, I don't think it's going to last the... <laughs> That you know, the job is so hard now. There was really a kind of outpouring in in all the breaks between our sessions of how tough the job had become. And um, this was 2008, I think. Yeah, would have, yeah, it would have been 2008. And I, I was really, you know, because I'd been out of schools for a while at that stage and um, had thought, you know, well, I knew things were tough, but it, things seemed to be a lot worse. And when I started digging into it, of course, I turned up that the report that the Victorian Department had done called The Privilege and the Pride. Oh, because, look, that's
0: on my list to talk to you about, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that was an absolutely eye-watering document um, and I thought, why has nobody done anything about this? And, in fact, you know, four or five years later, the situation seems to be worse rather than better and yet nobody's done anything about it. And I was chatting to various academics and other people, and they said, look, the only way you're going to get this out um, and acted on is to get it into the media and the only way you can do that is to have it researched independently. And um, round about that time I won what they called a Research Accelerator Award at Monash, which was, you know, they picked their, um, what they thought were their up-and-coming good researchers and gave them a, a, a head start in terms of money to, do a, a substantial research project, and so that's how the principal Australian Principal Health and Wellbeing Survey started. So it was funded funded by Monash, and we, you know, the rest um, led from there all those years ago.
0: So the first Principal Health and Wellbeing Survey was in 2011.
1: Yep. So it took me a year to work out all the principal organisations. <laughs> um, I didn't realise how... There were 63, I think, at the time, principal organisations around the country, and um, just getting to know everybody and introducing myself and all of those sorts of things, that took a year, and it took a year to design the, the questions and consult with people from around um, the country and, in fact, also from overseas about what sort of things we should ask. And so just discovering all of that in between, you know, I was full-time teaching at the time as well, mm. um, took a couple of years. So, um, yeah, the first rollout was 2011 um, and it's still going.
0: I suppose to maintain the integrity of the survey, has it undergone any changes between 2011 and now?
1: Yes, look, it has. It's We've added and subtracted. Look, it's a very long survey and that's one of the criticisms, of course, of it is principals are busy and you're asking them to spend probably nearly an hour completing at least the first time they do the survey and um, probably 40 minutes or so for subsequent years. But we've been um, really careful to use the most robust instruments that are um, generally accepted around the world as being the, the best Um, self-report measures of occupational health and safety. And um, that has been um, a bone of contention amongst the research team, because really, you know, we'd all much rather ask far less questions um, to get significant answers. But of course, then the, the veracity of the of the research is not mm. so so good. We're we're branching at the moment into the area of artificial intelligence to um, mine through all of the answers that we've got f- through so many um, people's responses, various countries now, and um, multiple years of uh, responses to try and see if we can um, come up with ways of with using modern technology to help us ask less questions but still be um, confident in the answers that we're we're getting back which will make it easier for principals and um, yeah you know so it's it's this is early days but I've got a very smart set of um, researchers who I'm working with at the moment mm. who are um, very keyed up into in this area and they're looking at that
0: despite being a fairly lengthy survey there is a very high participation rate
1: yes. And there's a very high return rate, which is sort of extraordinary in general research terms. We get, you know, 90-plus percent return rate. And that's unheard of in, in ordinary um, research where you're using surveys. People go, you've yeah, done it once, that'll do. But because we give very detailed feedback, and that was one of the things that I was very uh, keen on when we first started, that the individual should get something for their time, so everybody who fills out the survey gets um, a very detailed report about their own personal health and well-being yes. and their occupational safety.
0: Yes. Now, you mentioned the privilege and a price. Yeah. Now, that was released in 2004. Yeah. And I remember doing that survey <laughs> and I also remember remember having a conversation with my colleagues and asking where the hell – has that survey and the results gone? We haven't heard anything. And then we heard on the grapevine that the results were so damning that the department decided not to release the results for some time. Yeah. So they came out in
1: 2004. and, And they went up on their website for about 10 minutes, I think, and then they took it down again. So they said they could release it. But luckily I was able to get a copy of it.
0: Yeah, I've actually got a copy of it too because I used it for my own research. Mm. But um, I think something like um, 50% of the principals who filled out that survey said that they'd had a medical diagnosis attributable to their work. Yeah. So it was either... I don't know, headaches or, you know, whatever it was. And the other really interesting thing that I thought that came out of that survey was that 93% of principals considered themselves to be educational leaders, but in reality 80% said that they were
1: managers. Yeah.
0: So what's changed from 2004 to
1: now? Very little. The problem with departments of education and probably departments of all sorts of things, transport, health, all of those, is that they're full of um, people who don't understand necessarily what the job involves. And you wouldn't expect them to, clearly, but they, they don't tend to be people who are inquisitive and want to listen about how the job works and how we could make things better. They tend to be more command and control type people. They're often lawyers because they're dealing with legislation and policy you know, at a, at a high level and there's nothing wrong with that except that you need some educators to explain what the ramifications of these policies and, and changes to legislation mean. So in, in some sense things haven't changed much because of the way the whole departmental system works I mean to, to do very well in the public service you need to spend your time in education transport and health to get to treasury
0: <laughs>
1: and treasuries were you know the big aim and there there was a time in Victoria where there were a lot of school-based people in the department at pretty senior levels and in one sense that was a good thing in another sense you know that's led to all sorts of other difficulties because they probably weren't as skilled as they could have been in other areas that are important to running a Department of Education. But in terms of what it's like on the ground, I think things have gotten worse because parents particularly um, are far more aware of their rights but they're not nearly as willing to own up to their responsibility for bringing up their kids.
0: That's very nicely (laughs) put.
1: Um, and so it, it creates a lot of conflicts that are, um, we've just seen basically exponential growth in offensive behaviour over the life yeah. of the survey. And that's really sad. I mean, it was, I was shocked at the level of it when I first um, got the first year's results, and it's got continually worse since then.
0: And I think social media does not help.
1: Oh, absolutely. And we I mean, that's one of the changes in the survey over time is we've We've added questions in about social media to see what's happening there uh, and at a very kind of light touch level. But um, yes, it's terrible. I don't know. And so, you know, social media is terrible in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's extraordinarily difficult for parents, very difficult for kids. It's affecting, in Australia particularly, it's affecting teenagers' um, sleep hugely. It's like that, you know. Um, when teachers go on camp, they sort of sleep with an ear open in case yes. there's a bit of <laughs> um, a reason to uh, intervene. Well, apparently teenagers are doing something similar with their phones. They're sort of keeping an ear out in case their phone goes off and they feel like they need to answer it. doesn't matter when mm-hmm. the message comes through. Um, so, yeah, there are there are a number of issues that have made life more difficult, but I think the the kind of key elements of Can a department really trust the principal to run the school with some sense of autonomy? I don't think that's changed much. And um, until that changes, I don't think many of the other things will change.
0: I was interested in the number of, um, well, actually three out of ten principals received a red flag email. What's all that about?
1: Now, the red flags, um, we developed a system of um, basically an early warning system for people that looked like their health was under serious threat, and um, that was the red flag. Now, there's the sort of technical aspects to that. One of them was we simply asked a question that came from the Australian Quality of Life Survey, which is sort of the gold standard of that Um type of you know quality of life uh, instruments, and that is have you felt like harming yourself in the last week and then at what level? No, haven't thought about it at all. It's crossed my mind right up to I think about it all the time and if people um, are saying uh, I think about it often or I think about it all the time, that's a red flag straight away and we, we then it, it generates an automatic email in the system that goes out to mm-hmm. that participant to say, you know, some of your responses indicate that you may need to seek some help. And, you know, and we give um, web links and all sorts of things, and people can look that up and um, do it rather than a phone call, which would be, you know, very invasive. Uh, then there are calculations from suites of answers, which is, you know, maybe 30 or 40 answers, we calculate a total for that and then say this person is showing serious risk and um, that would generate a red flag as well. And um, when we started doing those ones, people would get back to me and say, oh, I must have made a mistake, sorry, I must have ticked the wrong box, you know, don't worry about it, I'm fine. And um, I got suspicious about that. And so the, the Australian Quality of Life Survey had been um, normed against a number of pop- clinical populations as well as the general population. So one of those populations were women with postnatal depression and Vietnam veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder um, and various other ones. And the, the pattern of responding for those two groups, particularly women with postnatal depression and um Vietnam vets with PTSD it was exactly the same pattern of responding as these principals who were saying, "Don't, no, no, it's not me. Everything's fine. Just change my answers," which means they are in denial about how bad things were, or you know, potentially. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've. Um, probably over the years become more proactive about saying you know we strongly recommend that you take these results and discuss them with your GP and um, I've had lots of feedback over the years from people often they would get a red flag and say actually I knew I was in trouble I'm going to do something about it thank you very much or I didn't know I was in trouble but thank you I will go and discuss this with my GP. So I think it has been useful in that sense for people. But the the percentage is pretty scary. And in the the qualitative part of the survey where we just ask people, you know, is there anything else you want to tell us? Or sometimes um, principals will email me with a story about, you know, why their results are like they are. And they are often describing sort of classic symptoms of PTSD. So... An incident has happened at school, which has probably not been huge, but it's just been the straw that's broken the camel's back and they they kind of can't do their or they can't perform in this in the way that they've been performing beyond that point. That part of the school, every time they walk past it, you know, break out in a cold sweat or whatever. So it's pretty yeah. sobering stuff.
0: Yeah. The Some of the areas that you look at in the survey uh, for principals of burnout, sleeping troubles, yeah. um, stress, depressive symptoms and so on, yeah. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a principal who didn't have any of those symptoms, even at a very, very low level.
1: Well, it's a stressful job and, the, the, you know, even if the departments around the country and the world supported principals absolutely as well as they could it would still be a very stressful job because of the human interaction and the very high levels of emotional engagement with both parents and kids that are just a a normal part of the job and I think principals sign on for that I don't think that's a a great surprise or anything I think Mm. other great surprises that what surprises them is the amount of sort of administrative workload or the level of threats that they're supposed to deal with without a lot of support um, and things like that. But um, I think, you know, people choose that job relatively speaking with their eyes open and they do it because they love it. And in the same way that, you know, nurses choose to be nurses and police choose to be police and whatever, you know, they they kind of know what they're getting in for. So, so that's okay. So I think and there's there's pretty good evidence in the 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 literature about people who choose the helping professions are a little bit more vulnerable to these things anyway, and you know the more you care, the more you can be kind of vicariously hurt by what you see around. Mm. You know. There wouldn't be a principal in the country that hasn't heard terrible stories of kids' lives outside of school and things, and who feel for them and want to do more to help them, and yet you you know you can only do so much. So you're right, I think there would be some elements of that in everybody.
0: Why is it that experienced principals and, you know, we're looking at 21 plus years experience, they've actually got lower levels of burnout and stress? What's going on there?
1: Um, that's actually reflected in the population at large too. That happens to everybody. It's a function of age. You get to a certain point where you think, well, I actually don't care that much about what other people think about me. I've lived a good life or I haven't or whatever. Um,
0: Old age is liberating.
1: Exactly. So I think that is probably what's going on here too. So it's just a normal part of the ageing process where you, you basically just get a bit more comfortable in your own skin, I think.
0: And I think one of the things that you looked at in one of the last reports was around the number of principals who plan on retiring.
1: Yeah. And, I mean, it's always hard to know because the um, economic circumstances change quickly, you know, COVID comes along, whatever. Um, So what people's intentions are and what they actually do is often two quite different things. But certainly anecdotally, COVID has been an interesting one in that um, a number of principals have said to me, I'm going to get the school through this and get them going and that's it, I've had enough. And I'm going. I've done my bit, I can't do any more. And that would make a lot of sense to me because they've been treated pretty badly and, I mean, so have a lot of people, don't get me wrong, but, you know, it's like, a week's warning to take a national education system online (laughs) and then offline, online, you know, with very little warning and, and then, oh, well, you can just do hybrid classes and, you know, half your kids will be at home isolating and half will be in the room and you'll be able to just manage all that, won't you?
0: The hardest thing with all of that, getting a week's notice, was the fact that you're a principal in a very low socioeconomic school and more than half of your kids don't even have computers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I heard, I mean, there was, a, I heard about a school in um, New South Wales where I think it was very high Indigenous population, maybe 90% Indigenous population, and the principal had, said to the department, I don't have a single family with a computer or internet access at home and you're expecting me to go online. And they said, don't worry, we'll supply every family with something. Well, that stuff, the equipment arrived after the lockdown was over. Yes, true. the equipment arriving is not enough. You've got to set it up and make sure it works and, you know, help with technical help and all that sort of stuff.
0: Phil's interview is so informative and special that it deserves to be listened to in its entirety. Tune in next week as we go deeper with Phil into the Principal Health and Wellbeing Survey, what it says about principles and a pathway to better health. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of Talking Out of School, where we cover topics and dilemmas associated with the ups and downs and even the downright curious of the school leader's job. Want to know more? Then visit me at shapingleaders.com.au But for now, here's the staying ahead of the game.